There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. And Greg, last week we talked about something and I don't remember what it was. What was our show last week? Well, last week we talked about, should I pay down my mortgage or right. will I get a better rate of return by buying stocks and bonds? Yeah, I had a little, is it an age moment there where I was it could be. thinking yeah. like, what was it we talked about last week? Yeah. But yeah. I guess after 145 episodes, I get a little bit of a pass on not remembering exactly what we talked about a week ago. You're not getting any younger either. Yeah. Like what'd you have for dinner last night? If only I had dinner. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> what, what'd you have for dinner the night before? <laughs> Who can remember that stuff? Exactly. So why should I remember what we talked about last week? But all right, so what are we talking about today? It's actually related to that discussion about interest rates and it we're going to talk about well, actually interest rates, right? And why are we talking about it? Because it's interesting and timely, of course, because there's a lot of information out right now about what we're going to call hawkish and dovish undertones Hawkish and overtones. Or dovish. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, Craig, CNBC posted on Tuesday, March 7th, and I'm just going to quote it here. Yep. Fed Chair Powell says interest rates are likely to be higher than previously anticipated. This is a very hawkish tone from the central bank in the U.S. Yep, that is. Yes. So that we've heard this a lot over the years, hawkish versus dovish, yep. right? Now, that comment, that one comment that they're likely to be higher, this hawkish tone actually sent the stock market down about 2% that day. Yeah, that was a bad day. Yeah, so why is that? Like nothing actually happened yet. They didn't actually adjust interest rates. They just simply stated that they're likely to be higher. So the answer is that the market looks for economic comments from the Fed and other central banks, right? And often sees them as what we say hawkish or dovish. So in Canada, the Bank of Canada on March 8th, just last week, came out with a dovish signal. That's right. They did not raise interest rates. Yeah. They said, we're going to pause our interest rate hikes. So we're going to get into this a little bit, like hawkish versus dovish. What does it mean and why is it important? So a lot of the information we're going to go through today comes from Investopedia. Just want to give them a a shout out because I think it's the right thing to do, right? I don't think it's hawkish or dovish for me to recommend that people go to Investopedia for some very good information. No, not at all. So, Greg, what is an inflation hawk? It's a good question. Why don't you tell me? Well, an inflation hawk is also known in monetary jargon just as a hawk. So this is a policymaker or advisor who is predominantly concerned with the potential impact of interest rates as they relate to fiscal policy. Now, that's a real mouthful. But what does it really mean? It just means that in order to be hawkish, hawks are seen as willing to allow interest rates to rise in order to keep inflation under control even if that means sacrificing some economic growth, consumer spending, and even unemployment levels, right? So this is where we are as inflation rates continue to be much higher than kind of the historical average. Like last summer in the U.S., inflation came in somewhere around 9%. And today it's somewhere 
I don't know exactly, but or somewhere around 5%. That's right. Right? Yeah. And so a lot of these interest rate hikes that started occurring in, I want to say February, March of 2022. March, March right? of 22, yeah. So we're a year into the rate hikes. They were being done to bring down this inflation rate. And it does work, but it, it takes time, right? Yeah. Now, there's a difference, as I mentioned, between a hawk and a dove. And we're going to get into that a little bit, but let's just stick with hawks for now. And hawks eat doves, don't they? Like, you know, I wonder, with, well, wonder what's away, going on there. We're giving away the punchline. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay, so hawks, as you mentioned, they generally favor relatively higher interest rates if they're needed to keep inflation in check. So hawks are less concerned with economic growth and more focused on the potential of recessionary pressure brought to bear by high inflation rates. So the question we've been getting a lot recently is, are we headed into a recession? I get that one all the time. Yeah. What's the answer? Well, the answer is we may have already been in one, or at least in the States, last year, because I believe there was two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth last year. Yeah, and that's the economic definition of a recession. Right. So, yeah, sorry, go on. That's right. And so if you go by the strict definition, now a lot of economists and others argued that, well, it looked like a recession from the GDP standpoint, but given unbelievably low unemployment levels and other measures of the economy, it was hard for them to say, they couldn't bring themselves to say there, there was a recession. Because of the unemployment levels. That's right. right. Because they said you can't be in a recession with record low unemployment levels. That's right. Yeah. And unemployment levels are at, at levels not seen in 40 years or so. So whether being hawkish is a good or appropriate stance actually depends on the strength of the economy and other macroeconomic factors. And that's because hawkish policies that can lower inflation can also lead to economic contraction and higher unemployment and sometimes can actually backfire and lead to deflation, which is bad. And we'll talk a little bit about why deflation is bad in a bit. So Despite the fact that it's common to use the term hawk in terms of monetary policy, it can be used in a variety of contexts. You know, and in general, it refers to somebody who's intently focused on a particular aspect of a larger pursuit or endeavor. A budget hawk, for example, believes the federal budget is of the utmost importance, just like a generic inflation hawk is focused on interest rates. A war hawk, you know, and we've heard that, a hawkish stance with relates to military issues, similarly pushes for armed conflict to resolve disputes as opposed to diplomacy or restraint. Well, what about Hawkeye, though, in MASH? Hawkeye wasn't a hawk, right? Okay. <laughs> was, wasn't he a doctor? Interesting that you brought that up. I have no idea. Come on. You, <laughs> that, uh, of course he was a doctor. Yeah, so it's just kind of funny that his name was Hawkeye. Exactly. I don't know if many people actually know the MASH reference. Well, for anybody listening that's under 30 years old, MASH was a excellent television comedy drama based around the Korean War, I think it was. Yeah. Or, or Vietnamese War. Vietnam. Yeah, probably the Vietnamese yeah, War. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so wait, are we recommending that people go back and watch MASH? Yes, I think they should. It's <laughs> yeah, a great show. Pretty good TV show. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Okay, anyway. Let's talk about some of the advantages and disadvantages of hawkish policies. So, you know, and sometimes you know, the term hawk sounds like it's being served up as an insult. But despite that, high interest rates can carry some economic advantages. You know, and while they may make it less likely for people to borrow money, they make it more likely that people will save money. And we've seen that a lot over the last year. When you look at the interest rates today, savings rates just on daily interest accounts, before the rate hikes started, we were earning 0.2%. 
And now, just on daily interest, we're earning over 4%. So it's quite a dramatic change, and it's it lends more to people deciding to, well, maybe I'll just save my money. I can get 4% with no risk. But how people in finance say it, they'd say, a year ago, interest rates were at 25 basis points. Today, they're at 430 basis points. Exactly. Which sounds better. Yeah, well, basis points sound a lot better. There's makes more you, of them. Makes you sound smarter. I yeah, think. there's a hell of a lot more. Yeah. Anyway, in some cases, banks end up lending money more freely when interest rates are higher because high rates can dissipate risk. Banks can potentially be more likely to approve borrowers with less than perfect credit histories because, of course, they're being compensated with higher rates. And moreover, if a country increases interest rates but its trading partners don't, that can result in the fall of prices of imported goods, of course, because you're paying with the stronger dollar. So those are all advantages of, of those hawkish policies and higher interest rate policies. Some of the disadvantages, uh, well, higher interest rates can become deflationary, making prices cheaper, which sounds good. You know, you think, well, what, what's wrong with lower prices? And I think that you have to look at that in a contextual area, like you look at things like technology. I mean, Technology products have been in a deflationary spiral for decades. Just look at the price of TVs. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, would you remember the first, what was it, the old technology? Well, they had plasma. Plasma. Yep. The first plasma TV I ever looked at was at a place called A&B Sound in yep. downtown Calgary. Yep. It was, I want to say a 32-inch screen or something like that. Yep. It was $20,000. Right. $20,000. Right. Yeah, and you know what a 32-inch LCD TV costs you today at Costco? About five hundred bucks, two ninety nine, two ninety or yeah. better. <laughs> it's quite a difference. <laughs> it's quite a difference. Are we recommending people go shop at Costco, Colin? Yeah, why not? <laughs> okay, only if you like to save money. Yeah, that's right. Okay, will that get us a plug for Costco? I'm not sure. Yeah. Higher interest rates. So again, we talked about deflation. Well, deflation can actually be worse than moderate inflation in the long run, because persistent deflation just means that a dollar tomorrow is going to be worth more than one today and worth even more in a week or a month. And so that incentivizes people to hoard money and put off making large purchases until much later when they'll be even less expensive in terms of the dollar's greatest purchasing power. Mm -hmm. And that obviously leads to reduced consumer spending today, and that's very tough on the economy. So with higher interest rates, consumers will borrow less and spend less on credit. Higher mortgage rates will also put a damper on the housing market and can cause housing prices to fall in turn. Higher rates on car loans can have a similar effect on the automotive market. So you see that higher rates can have some very negative consequences. So this all has to do with the velocity of money. When you're paid for your job and you take that dollar to go to Costco or wherever, right? And you buy a a TV or whatever. Well, somebody made that TV, right? So you're putting money towards that retailer who has employees and that money is then distributed to their employees in an indirect way, right? And so what you're saying is that if people stop making purchases, then the velocity of money slows down, right? Right on. Is that right? I think so. Well, I believe so. Yeah. Not an expert in economics, but it sounds right. My study economics. Well, there you go. You should know. Yeah. Now, hawkish policies also tend to reduce corporate issues, right? So companies' desires to borrow and invest could be reduced because the cost of loans and interest rates on bonds rise. And moreover, companies might actually be less eager to hire and retrain workers in that kind of an environment. So again, not just the effect on the individual consumer, but on companies as well. And hawkish policies can also impact domestic manufacturers and trade. So if the relative inflation rate in the home country is falling relative to the inflation rate in a trading partner, the exchange rate should adjust 
to keep prices in line with the dollar appreciating relative to the trading partners. Mm-hmm. So just as I said, with a, you know, a stronger dollar, it might make imported goods relatively cheaper, but domestic producers and certainly exporters would be in trouble because domestic exports would become relatively more expensive for overseas consumers. And so that, that would hurt domestic manufacturing. So certainly good intents and good intentions with hawkish interest rate policy and and some disadvantages as well. Well, I think it actually works against the GDP calculator. So GDP is just a summation of consumer spending, investment, government spending, and your net exports, Mm -hmm. right? So your imports, pardon me, your exports minus your imports. So if you're exports are down and your imports are up, you're going to have a negative economic time. Exactly. So just to summarize some of the pros and cons of these hawkish policies. And I guess the question people often have is, okay, that all makes sense. But doesn't the central bank know that when they raise rates, that they're going to cause the stock market to sell off? And, you know, look at the bond market this last year, like the price of bonds moves inverse to the interest rate movements, right? Yep. So haven't you had that question a lot from people? Like, why are they doing this, right? And the answer is that the central banks don't really give a crap about stock market, right? They shouldn't. I don't think they do. You know, they're supposed to be separate. They're only concerned with inflation and unemployment. Mm -hmm. And if inflation continues to run high and unemployment continues to run low, well, then they're going to continue to raise rates. That's right. Right. That's right. So the pros and cons of this hawkish policy that they might implement, or actually is being implemented currently. It is right now, for sure. The pros are that it can stem runaway inflation. And we see this, like, as I said, inflation numbers have come down quite a bit in the last few months. But when you raise interest rates, it's not an immediate thing, right? It takes time to filter through the system. Like, it's kind of like your example about buying houses or the housing market. So if you raise rates... It takes time for all those people that had pre-approved mortgages in place to get all of their mortgages funded at the old rates before the new rates sort of kick in, which the new higher rates would encourage people to maybe not buy that house, right? It increases the savings rate, as you mentioned, which makes sense. Like the hoarding, that makes a lot of sense, right? And as you mentioned, it has cheaper imports, which, hey, listen, I, I like cheaper imports if I'm a consumer, but... Our government probably doesn't like cheaper imports. No, and and domestic manufacturers probably don't either. Who are providing jobs. So those domestic manufacturers who now have higher interest rates, higher borrowing costs, lower sales, that just means there's more jobs to be lost, right? And tourists to foreign destinations have greater purchasing power. So this can work really well. Like, for example, we were in Mexico a few weeks ago. You know this, Greg. I do. And we're sitting around by the pool. We're in Puerto Vallarta. Am I recommending Puerto Vallarta, Greg? It's a lovely place. I'm sure lots of people would enjoy it. Beautiful. Felt very safe too. But you're sitting around by the pool and I tipped the waitress $2, two US dollars. And my son got really mad at me. Dad, why are you throwing away your money like that? I said, son, I didn't say it like that. Son, let me tell (laughs) you why. I said, son, that person makes 10 US dollars per day. That's their wage. So if I give them a $2 tip, it doesn't really mean much to me, the $2, but it probably means a lot more to them. Exactly. So that is the tourists having greater purchasing power. The cons are that, as you mentioned, it hurts domestic producers, which we just went through. 
It makes borrowing more expensive for consumers and firms, which we just discussed, and it could possibly lead to deflation. So, so there's pros and cons to that, just like everything, right? Yep, for sure. So why is it called hawkish? Well, let's get into that because we did an episode on why is a bull market called a bull market? Why is a bear market called a bear market? Do you remember that episode? I do. And just for those that didn't get a chance to listen to it, I don't know why you haven't yet, but it's always there for your listening pleasure whenever you want. A bull market is an up market and a bear market is a down market. And it's called a bull market because a bull attacks from a lower level with an upward force. And a bear attacks from an upward level with a downward force, right? And don't try this at home. You can take our word for it. <laughs> we should actually do like a YouTube video and get somebody dressed up as a bear and somebody dressed up as a bull and have them duke it out. So a lot of the financial terms come from things like this. So the term hawk comes exactly from that. It's named after hawks, which are aggressive birds of prey, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Whereas when... We talk about dovish policies or dovish overtones of the central banks, meaning that they're, I don't know, they're going to slow down interest rate hikes or not hike or something like that. It's seen as a more meek or conservative approach. And this epitomizes the peaceful symbolism of the bird, the dove. Right. Interesting. There you go. So we Makes went sense. through yep. bulls and bears and hawks and doves, right? Yep. Yep. Now, the question though, because... When we look at the central bankers, more notably in the U.S., like the Canadian market is only 3% of the world market. The U.S. market is 58% of the world market. So which number is bigger, Greg? To me, it sounds like the U.S., but <laughs> I mean, not slightly. being a math major, you know, but I'm going to go with the U.S. So there is a reason why people always talk about the U.S. central bank and they talk about the U.S. market and the U.S. economy. But if you are traveling in, I don't know, France or Italy or wherever, Nobody's going to ask you about what's the Canadian stock market doing, mm -hmm. right? But they'll yeah. know what the S&P 500 is doing, sure. right? Yeah. So these central bankers in the States and the U.S. Federal Reserve are often seen as either hawkish or dovish by nature, right? Mm -hmm. But this just isn't true because somebody that can have a hawkish appearance can also change their tune and implement dovish policies, sure. right? Yeah. So recent history of U.S. federal leadership shows that Alan Greenspan, who served as chair of the Fed from 1987 to 2006, was actually considered to be fairly hawkish in 1987, but he changed over time to a relatively dovish stance. Whereas Ben Bernanke, who came in after Greenspan, served from 2006 to 2014, he actually alternated between hawkish and dovish tendencies. Well, then look what happened during that period. So 2006, 2007, the... In the U.S., housing was on fire. You know, ninja mortgages were very popular and interest rates were starting to go up in response to that. And then, of course, we hit the global financial crisis and Ben Bernanke was forced into becoming very dovish. And it was the first time they lowered interest rates. Well, they lowered them quite low to near zero and they instituted other things which we talked about, like quantitative easing. But yeah, so he definitely was forced into taking on different positions depending on what's going on in the in the world and in the markets. That's a good point. This quantitative easing, we, we don't want to downplay either. Like the central bankers really only have two levers to pull from, one being interest rates, up or down, hawkish or dovish, right? Yep. The other being open market operations or quantitative easing, where they go into the bond market and purchase bonds sure. in the market just to create liquidity. 
And I think you're right. The first time quantitative easing was really implemented on a broad scale was during the global financial crisis. And then during the, do you remember COVID? There was something called COVID. Oh, yeah. Yeah. During the COVID crisis, we had more quantitative easing. But during that round of it, instead of just purchasing government bonds from the marketplace, they actually started to purchase some corporate bonds. That's right. So that's always evolving. But okay, let's carry on. So Janet Yellen was the Fed chief from 2014 to 2018 and was generally seen as a dove committed to maintaining low lending rates. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can see it in stock market returns too. Like the market returns during 2018 to 2019 were actually really good. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. Jerome Powell was named to the post in 2018 and was rated as neutral, neither hawkish nor dovish by the Bloomberg intelligence fed spectrometer. A spectrometer. Cool. Okay. So the whole point of that long ramble was that I don't know if you can really say that a chair of the U S federal reserve is necessarily a hawk or a dove. It's really dependent on the situation. Well, that that's right. In. You sort of hope that they wouldn't have an ingoing long-term bias, but rather they'd react to situations in the economy as they come up and react to changes in the economy. Yeah. And certainly when you look at the changes in the economy since, oh, I don't know, say the beginning of COVID, when global GDP tanked, I think they really had no choice but to become dovish and to lower interest rates to try to dig their way out of the economic hole created from essentially shutting down the global economy for a couple of months. Yeah. Can you imagine if in March of 2020, when the, the U.S. stock market was down 35% in two weeks because the globe just sort of shut down for a period of time, if they had raised rates at the same time? In technical terms, I think that would have been bad. <laughs> yeah, that would, it really wouldn't have stimulated spending, no, and no. we would have had a much deeper event, right? Now, interestingly, you know, and this maybe is a little off subject, but uh, interestingly, there was also massive fiscal stimulus, I believe, in the U.S. and Canada, too, but in the U.S. primarily trillions of dollars were raised through loans to individuals and businesses to get them through the COVID crisis. And the combination of low interest rates, quantitative easing, and fiscal stimulus probably was one of the significant contributors to the massive inflation that we've been dealing with over the last year and what the central banks have been trying to deal with. So you have to believe in cycles if you're going to if you're going to be in this business. So let's just talk a little bit about how interest rates are actually set in the U.S. primarily. So there's eight annual meetings and a group from the Fed, which is known as the FOMC, Federal Open Market Committee. They examine economic indicators. They'll look at the consumer price index, producer price index, and and other economic indicators to determine if interest rates should go up, down, or stay the same. And so those who support the high rates are hawks, and obviously those that favor the low rates would be the doves. But because they have to decide how to control the direction of the economy, they'll tend to make their decisions on raising rates or keeping rates the same or lowering rates depending on the kind of data that they receive, okay? Because it's the Fed's responsibility to balance economic growth and inflation, and it does that by the process of manipulating interest rates or what we call monetary policy. And adjusting interest rates has been proven to work, but it takes time. And that's why you get into a a lot of discussion right now about, well, is the Federal Reserve moving too quickly? Do they need to take a pause to see if the effects of, you know, the interest rate changes so far are filtering their way through the economy? We know that inflation is down, but it's not down to where they want it to be or where it has been for the last 30 years or so. 
And so they're trying to balance economic growth and inflation. They're looking at the data. They're adjusting interest rates. There will always be somebody that complains about their actions, right? So right now, a lot of people are complaining that it took them too long to start raising interest rates, and that's why inflation got out of control. And if they keep interest rates high for too long and we go into a recession, which is a natural kind of part of the cycle, they'll be accused of raising rates too high and causing a recession in the economy. So I think the bottom line is a lot of their decisions are dependent on data. Data is usually in the rear view mirror, other than certain leading indicators that they can look at. And so all we can really talk about is the goal of monetary policy and the results will be the results. Yeah, as you say, the bottom line is that inflation hawks adopt policies focused on stamping out inflation, such as aggressively raising interest rates and other contractionary measures. Their target is to lower those inflation rates to somewhere between 2 and 3%, and the central banks typically hear them talk about a target of 2%. The reality is that we're not there right now, right and so the likelihood of more rate hikes in the U.S. has become higher. That's right. Which is a hawkish tone. And by the way, you don't have to try to make a prediction about that. Last week, Jerome Powell, the Federal Reserve Chairman, came out and said it outright. That's what we started the show <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Like when he says, and I quote, interest rates are likely to be higher than previously anticipated that's pretty direct. You might as well believe him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be very hard to think that the central bank would come out at their next meeting and not raise rates. And that's exactly why you saw the stock market sell off. Exactly. Yeah, but yeah, that's kind of a fun discussion. Hawks, doves. Hawks, hawks and doves, okay. Bulls, bears. Yep. What are we, what, Maybe next? we'll find a couple of other animals to focus on next time. Pigs. Remember that, what was it? Like bulls make money, bears make money, and pigs get slaughtered? Yep. You heard yeah, that, that one was before? The old, yeah, the old trader's saying. Yeah, maybe we'll get into that, yeah. Right on. Okay, till next time. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.